Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we're asking, is big data fundamentally racist? Algorithms are being used more and more to make sense of the world, from education to finance, from the justice system to the electoral system. But is big data consciously or unconsciously discriminating against people based on income, race, and class? Kathy O'Neill is a data scientist and the author of a book, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And she's here in the studio with me now. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Kathy, my first question is the one I pose at the outset. Is big data fundamentally racist? Big data is not fundamentally racist, but it is being used, I believe, in in racist manners in the sense that we as a society are fundamentally racist. The data that we produce is picking up those patterns and then the machine learning algorithms that we train with that data then picks up those patterns. And if we just use those algorithms blindly, which we happen to be doing right now, then we propagate such patterns. So give me a couple examples. I think the probably the most pernicious example, I'll go straight there, is um, the recidivism risk algorithms being used currently in more than half the states by judges for decisions such as sentencing, parole, or bail. These algorithms are trying to uh, understand the risk of a given criminal defendant of coming back to prison after leaving, usually within two years, or maybe even being arrested within two years. And it relies very crucially on criminal data, so criminal arrest records, which are themselves not unbiased. They're biased because we have a a biased police force, which we all know. And then on the other hand, also relying on data that comes from questionnaires that include questions that are proxies for race and class. Questions such as, do you come from a high crime neighborhood? Did your father go to prison? Um, Did you finish high school? Did you get suspended from high school? Do you have a job? All these things are proxies for race and class. So, And I should mention that if you have a higher risk score, then you get sentenced to longer in prison. So this is a, it matters, you know, it's high stakes. So we're having these, these things that are sort of embedding, I, what I would say is they embed society's big problems. They actually look into society's big problems, like why do poor people, people of color, you know, come to prison more often, come back to prison more often, or that's what they should be asking. But instead of asking those questions, they're shifting the responsibility of those problems onto the individual. So the information quotient embedded in the data embodies the same racism that exists in the rest of society so that the output of the algorithmic big data soup is itself discriminatory or racist. So, I mean, it's the way it's being used, right? Yes, that that is exactly correct. Um, we could be using it differently. So I, I don't want to leave the impression that I'm saying it is fundamentally a racist act to use an algorithm because we could be saying, hey, why are poor people, why are people of color so much more likely to come to prison? How can we change that? But that's not what we're doing. Instead, we're saying you're much more likely to come to prison. We're going to punish you in advance for that for that fact. Great. So 
is the fix a change that we need to do to our models and our algorithms and the data, or is the fix to society? Both. Absolutely both. The immediate fix, I think, is that we have to stop assuming that big data algorithms are objective, because that's how they're marketed. So that's a big problem. And uh, we know that the research that you've done, as well as Julia Angwin of ProPublica, has shown the ways that a lot of institutions buy the products and don't actually know how to look under the hood and examine it. What is the solution to that? The way I say it is you want to put the science into the data science. So what's going on really is that we have these silver bullet big data algorithms that we trust fundamentally and trust too much, trust blindly. And what I'd like us to do is start saying, hey, show us the evidence that this is fair. Show us the evidence that this is legal. Show us the evidence that this is meaningful. We haven't asked the producers of big data algorithms to give us evidence that they work. Can you imagine if like Martians came down to the earth and said, I've got a way of sentencing criminals. Just trust me. Like we wouldn't trust them. Why do we trust algorithms? Do the existing tools that we have when we want to petition the state for information about how it came to a decision through the Freedom of Information Act need to be extended to the contractors of states who sell these products that have enormous public consequence, yet themselves are currently non-transparent? Yes, absolutely. Right now, I can't, as as an interested person who cares about civil rights, I cannot get my hands on the data or the, the underlying source code for these algorithms. Now, you've tried. I have. Explain. Well, with, with the teacher value-added model, which is a separate, separate thing, I, I have filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get my hands on the source code for, a, for an algorithm that was assessing teachers in New York City. And th- the reason I decided I, th- I could get this is because the New York Post successfully filed such a request to get and receive, and they actually successfully received all the teachers' names and scores for their assessment. And I figured, well, if they could get the scores, I should be able to get the formula. But I couldn't get it. And what was the grounds by which they denied you that request? Well, they didn't tell me. But I luckily had a back channel to the people who worked there. It was on campus at Madison, Wisconsin, called the Value Added Research Center. And somebody there told me, well, by the licensing agreement we have with the city of New York, we will not show anyone in New York City, including the people you know, that are the superintendents of schools, this formula. So nobody has access to this, which is to say nobody understood the scores that were being used to deny or give tenure to teachers. And it's unlikely that the civil servants who actually signed the contract actually understood the math. You know, I actually don't think they wanted to. I think that to some extent it's fair to say that everyone's looking for a silver bullet and, and, and everyone's trying to avoid a complicated conversation. And the conversation they're avoiding in this case is what actually makes a teacher a good teacher. And what people do is they say, let's bypass that conversation because it's fraught and let's bring in a, a big data algorithm to solve this problem for us. And what's great is it gives us a rule to follow. And if someone complains, we'll just point at the algorithm and say, it wasn't us, it was the algorithm. So let me press you on this. Do you think that big data could determine who's a good teacher or and who's not? Or is that just too hard? Do you think humans could determine that? I think it's hard, but I think sometimes we have to. And I think that it's useful to try. So I would say if we could get a human understanding of how to suss out a teacher's ability, and if we could, you know, if it was like a 10-step process, and if we could eat in each of those steps we could simulate it with technology, maybe using sensors or what have you, then we could do it. But we would have to 
put it to the test, the scientific test of rigor. We'd have to say, okay, human do it, computer do it at the same time. Are they agreeing with it? Are the results in agreement? And that isn't what's happening. So in the case of the value-added model for teachers, which is what I talk about in the book, there was very little ground truth. There was very little comparison to any kind of rubric of teacher quality. Nor did the system learn over time in terms of false positives and false negatives. Right. Because there was no rubric, they didn't bother to evaluate teachers independently and see whether their scores reflected actual quality. So there's no feedback mechanism. So at the outset, you said that big data was not inherently racist, but society is. Are you putting too much stock into big data? Do you expect too much from it? After all, the data is going to be a representative of society. Society has these problems. We can build models that are going to probably do better in terms of allowing us to scale and measure things in ways that we couldn't before. We will have these problems, but in the case of the teacher evaluations, your book identified one teacher and several teachers that actually were probably wrongly scored, but it didn't look at the many hundreds others who might indeed have been very correctly scored, and education is better off for having gotten rid of them from the system. <laughs> well, I have to disagree with you there. I think the value-added model for teachers was no better than a random number generator. But I would argue that it is not it is not my responsibility to make big data work better. It is the responsibility of people claiming that they're objective and true and scientific authority, the claiming of the scientific authority. It is their responsibility to give us evidence that that is true. The, and the same time, I do I'm not simply tearing it down because I actually think we we can develop and we are starting to develop. There is a, a growing corpus of such methodology to make these algorithms better. So it, we don't have to just say, oh, oh, well, like the data reflects racism. And so therefore, my machine learning algorithm reflects racism. Oh, well, we can make it better. We can use um, nude methodologies if we wanted to, to actually improve the future rather than settle for the status quo. Kathy, it dawns on me, you're not an enemy of big data. You're a lover who feels jilted. <laughs> I would say jilted is... A little too personal. I am a scientist who is disappointed. I'm looking for more rigor. I think we can do a lot better, and I think we have to do a lot better. Kathy O'Neill, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Economist Asks. If you have any thoughts on big data and algorithms, please write to us via social media or email us at radio at economist.com. And do join us again the next time. In London, this is The Economist. 